We'll hear argument next in number 95-1872, William Strait versus A-1 Contractors and Lyle Stocker. Spectators are admonished, do not talk until... Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, this case is about whether an Indian tribe has jurisdiction over a tort action between two non-Indians. A-1 Contractors was working on the Fort Berthold Indian Reservation for the tribe's company. Where is the reservation, Ms. McCoy? The reservation is within the state of North Dakota. And the uh, accident occurred on a state highway on the reservation? That's correct. And uh, what uh, entity sets the speed limits and the uh, regulations for driving on that state highway? Is it the state of North Dakota? Yes, Your Honor, it is the state that sets the speed limit. And the other rules applicable to driving on that state highway? Those are set by both the tribe and the state. They have different regulations. The state could say uh, no left turn without a stop, and the tribe could say something the opposite. Right turn. Or right turn or whatever it is. At this time, Your Honor, there's, there's, there's never been a case that's answered any kind of conflict between the regulatory jurisdiction. But the state purports to adopt rules and regulations and standards for driving on that state highway. That's correct, as does the and tribe. could a state police officer be there and issue citations for a violation? That's correct, of yes. Of state law? As, as can the, that's correct, as can the, uh, the Federal Bureau of Indian Affairs and the tribal police. And in fact, who does police that stretch of road? Primarily the Bureau of Indian Affairs and the tribe. There are also, um, this particular stretch of road is a very small spur of a state highway. It's not a major thoroughfare. On all of the well, roads. Well, the, if a criminal traffic citation were issued by a uh, BIA staff person or a tribal policeman, would the subsequent prosecution con- be conducted in tribal court? Not if the person is a non-Indian. That's, that's of course. That would go to state court. That's because it's a criminal procedure. That's correct. However, non-Indians do uh, do uh, answer to civil traffic offenses to the tribe, even when they're cited by by non-tribal or non-federal law enforcement. Civil traffic offenses. Speeding, open container. Um, those aren't punishable by fine that's, or imprisonment? Th- those are punishable by fine. They are civil offenses, civil traffic offenses. That's correct. It, that's correct. And I think um, that the accident in this case occurred on this state highway, but this state highway is a very recent easement, a 1970 easement by the federal government. One, one other preliminary question is, is that the highway marks so that it says you are now entering or now leaving the reservation? Yes, it is, Your Honor. Um, there are, um, there's a sign at the very entry to the reservation. It only runs into the reservation for about seven miles, but there's a sign, uh, both the state speed limit sign and the sign that you are entering the Fort Berthold Indian Reservation. But the suit filed here uh, is not a traffic enforcement suit of any kind. It's a suit between two non-tribal members. 
That's correct. And could the suit have been brought in state court, do you suppose? There's not a definitive answer from this court as to that question, but we would concede that, yes, there would be. You would be. concede that it could That's have correct. Been. Concurrent. What we're asking is that the court also recognize the Has this court ever recognized concurrent jurisdiction in a civil context over a suit that occurs on a state highway? Have we ever dealt with that, do you think? No, the court has not. Have we ever dealt with concurrent jurisdiction with tribal courts at all? Yes. In a state um, tribal context? Yes, Your Honor. That's the Three Affiliated Tribes versus Wold decision of, mm -hmm. of um, 1986, where the, the civil cause of action arose on the reservation, this very reservation, in fact, mm -hmm. and this court held that the tribe could bring the claim against, in that case, a non-Indian in the state courts mm -hmm. on the theory of concurrent jurisdiction. But the plaintiff there was the tribe itself? That's correct. Mm -hmm. And here... Not a private non-member. That's correct. Mm -hmm. That's correct. Here, here the, the, the plaintiff in tribal court is, a, is a, um, an elderly woman who was married to a tribal member, and she was going towards the home on the trust allotment there that this highway How runs over. How could that over. make a difference? She either is a tribal member or she's not. And she's not. You can see that. That's correct. Yes. I think, though, there's two answers to your question. It doesn't make a difference under our primary theory, which is that Indian tribes have jurisdiction over the conduct of non-Indians, including Mrs. Fredericks and A1 contractors, when the case arises on Indian land. And on our alternative theory, it's not relevant either, because our alternative theory is that... Is the state highway easement considered Indian land the underlying fee? surely, is uh, trust land probably held for the Indian tribe. That's correct. It is our position that this highway constitutes Indian land sufficient. But indeed, the easement itself is held by the state and could be considered, I guess, state land for that purpose. Mm, it's the easement. A, um, it's, state property. It's, it's, a, it's a state easement, a, a much lesser interest than a fee simple. It's, it's a division of a bundle of rights, basically. The easement giving the right to use and the underlying fee being the rest, I suppose. That's correct. And it's, it's clear that this highway crosses exclusively Indian trust land for all of six and a half miles on the reservation. Well, did, where does the highway end up? At the lake. There's a, there's a lake. It's a cacoea. Is it, is it a, because is the lake a resort? I mean, why does the highway go to the lake? Or don't you know? Yes, I do, Your Honor. Um, on the Fort Berthold Indian Reservation, this road was originally, this is not in the record, but it was originally a Bureau of Indian Affairs gravel service road that ran to the original capital or headquarters of this tribe's reservation. That road has been there since at least, according to Corps of Engineer maps, since the 1940s. Below the boundaries of the reservation, it, was, it, it has been a state highway. In the, in the 1940s, when the uh, Garrison Dam was built and the lake was flooded onto this reservation, the tribe's capital was flooded, and that was subsequently moved. But as to this road, it remained a gravel BIA service road, only it stopped at the lake because the lake came to meet the road. In 1970, the tribe wanted this road paved to serve the tribal community of Twin Buttes on the reservation because the lake had so isolated Twin Buttes. The only things in Twin Buttes, population 300, are a K-8 tribal school, a satellite clinic for the Indian Health Service, the tribal community center that A1 contractors helped to build, 
and a, a now shut down due to downsizing Bureau of Indian Affairs substation. This is not a major marina for this lake. Those are on other parts of the reservation. Is there, is there a marina of some sorts at Twin Buttes? Or? It's my understanding there are two dock sites, one at Red Buttes and one, uh, they, they're, they're, uh, Twin Buttes itself is about three miles below the lake on the highway, and the two um, docks, they're not really full, full-blown marinas, are um, to, the, to the left and right of that, you know, east and west of that on the lake. But the, and one gets access to those docks, as you refer to them, by the, by the highway. That's correct, but the, the highway is also used, um, you know, it, it, that's seasonal use. The tribe, in fact, regulates seasonal vehicle use on that stretch of the highway, but there are many other roads on the Fort Berthold Reservation that provide the major access for recreation and use of this lake. Why, and, why was it important for um, the plaintiff to go to the tribal court? That was her choice of forum that she exercised. Why, why is it important for her? It's important for her because she's very much a member of this reservation community. She lives on the reservation. Her children are enrolled there. She lives on her deceased tribal member's husband allotment. That's the stretch of the highway that crossed where the accident occurred in this case. She's lived on this reservation uh, since, since it, for most of her adult life, and that is where her choice of form was. Plus, she put this court's cases together, Williams versus Lee. 1959 case that says if you are a non-Indian suing an Indian, you have to go to tribal court. And this court's case in 1987, 10 years ago, Iowa Mutual, that says if you're an Indian, you can sue a non-Indian in tribal court. She put those two together because she's a non-Indian suing a non-Indian. Isn't there, Ms. McCoy, some dispute about the second case that you mentioned, whether it meant anything more than you have to exhaust the tribal court process? It didn't make an ultimate determination that there was tribal court jurisdiction. Isn't that so? No, I don't think there's any dispute. Is it not so that subsequent cases of this court have said that about Iowa Mutual? I I, I believe that the reference there was in the plurality opinion in the Brendale case, the 1989 case. Um, But that arose dealing with the issue in Brendale of the tribe's authority to regulate the private property of non-Indians. That's not this case. And whatever Brendel involved, it did distinguish Iowa Mutual on the basis that it was merely an exhaustion. There was no determination that the tribe, as opposed to the state, had jurisdiction. And that, to the extent, I understand, Your Honor, to the extent the plurality in Brendale did hold that, that was not necessary to the Brendale ruling. And I think also the proper way to read Iowa Mutual is that I realize it set the exhaustion rule. It also set the rule by which exhaustion would be conducted, or else exhaustion itself would be a meaningless exercise. Because as this court said in National Farmers Union, where it expressly rejected the argument that respondents make here now for a rule of general and implicit divestiture of tribal court jurisdiction over reservation-based civil actions that was unanimously rejected in National Farmers Union and two years later in Iowa Mutual when it again dealt with the issue of how to exhaust, Iowa Mutual set a clear rule that tribal courts presumptively have jurisdiction over reservation-based civil actions against non-Indians. And the lower courts have relied on that. And that was dicta, though, was it not? 
You didn't have to say that in order to decide the question that the case court took the case to decide. I, I think that it, I, 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 with all due respect, Your Honor, I, Mr. Chief Justice, I think that it was the rule of that case by which exhaustion was to be conducted because it gives guidance to the tribal courts and the federal courts on that very issue. And we don't have Congress divesting this tribe's jurisdiction. But there's a civil tort suit on fee lands. I mean, you know, a tribe has some lands that sells some lands to people who are not Indian member tribe members. And there's a slip and fall accident. Does that mean those court cases have to go to the tribal court? I mean, the state court couldn't handle an ordinary slip and fall accident on a fee land? Well, I think, Your Honor, we should distinguish between the existence of the tribe's jurisdiction, which is the issue here, and the scope of that. Well, that's what I wondered. I mean, I understand much better since your explanation why the tribe really thinks of this highway as really its highway. And I could understand why they think that. But I guess we have to decide this as if it were Interstate 93. Isn't that right? And the two people involved had nothing to do with the tribe whatsoever, going down the biggest state 10-lane highway in imagination, which had just happened to cross an Indian tribe's land under an easement. I mean, we'd have to decide it on that basis, wouldn't we? Not necessarily. We've offered the court three alternative theories for dealing with this. The first one is if you find the site of this accident is Indian land, then this case is very easy to decide because the tribes can regulate non-Indians, a fortiori, tort cases, no problem in the courts. The second theory, though, I think addresses more of what you are saying, and that's if you don't want to get into the status of the land issue, fee land here, quasi-fee land, trust land, then we offer the court the opportunity to apply the rule for Indian tribes that governments can adjudicate tort cases arising within their territory because it is undisputed in this case that this case arose within the reservation boundaries. There's no issue of off-reservation contacts. If the status of the land is not necessary to a determination of the adjudicatory jurisdiction. Is that clear, that in an ordinary slip-and-fall tort accident in the middle of a reservation, but on fee land involving non-Indians, that those cases go as a matter of course to tribal courts? It's not. No case of this court has reached the issue of tribal adjudicatory jurisdiction on fee lands. However, Iowa Mutual and National Farmers Union both arose either on non-Indian-owned fee land or on a federal highway crossing Indian reservations, and the court did not rule against tribal jurisdiction. Is your assertion that the tribe, you keep referring to adjudicatory jurisdiction, as I recall, you say it is possible for the tribal court to adjudicate the case but not to apply tribal law. That's correct, Your Honor. And you don't ask us to decide right here whether they should apply tribal law or not, or do you think they shouldn't? That's two questions. I think that the court need not reach that issue in this case if it chooses not to because we're not at that point yet. We're at the threshold point. However, we would also argue that if the court wants to set the rule that it could be on a case-by-case, it should be on a case-by-case basis because it might involve fee land, it might involve quasi-fee land, it might involve trust land. I don't understand your answer to that question because it seems to me the two are tied together. If you're basing the jurisdiction on it happened on our land, whether the underlying happened on our land, then the most basic choice of law rule is the place of injury. 
the law comes from the place of injury. And when you have a coincidence between the forum and the place of injury, what other law would apply? It is quite common, um, Your Honor, that in cases, non-resident tort, motor vehicle tort cases, that um, the, the test is higher. It's significant context, and often they apply the forum, the, not the forum jurisdiction law, but the law of the other, the residents. The, the whole idea of a non-resident motor vehicle statute is that the committing the act in the territory, having the accident there, there's no counting of other contexts, if the accident happened there, that's a basis for both jurisdiction and well accepted that you apply the local law. I think that's been the traditional rule, but more and more the, the, the state courts are moving towards a, a more a significant you context analysis. You have any case where an accident happened inside a forum and the forum didn't apply some other law to the to determine the regulating rules for that, for the conduct of the driver? The closest cases this, that we cite in our briefs are the Allstate versus Schutz and the Hague. For the, they're, not, they're not particularly analogous because they were not motor vehicle tort cases. They were other kinds of civil tort may, cases. May I, you, I have two questions I want to get in before you lose your time. Is there a body of Indian law on issues such as contributory negligence and comparative negligence and what is, you know, all the, is there a common law that's been developed in the tribe? In this tribe, yes. they um, they follow state law. They follow state law. That's correct. And they do not have a substitute. My second body. question is, how does the how would the plaintiff get the judgment enforced if the plaintiff got a judgment? In this case, North Dakota has both a Supreme Court case and a uh, Supreme Court rule of the state court that deal with enforcement of tribal court judgments when it needs to be enforced by a court. I would have to tribal. bring an independent proceeding in state court to get it enforced. I believe that's correct. Yes. That's if right. the action were brought in state court in the first place, is there any question in your mind that the state would apply uh, state law as opposed to tribal law? As a theoretical matter, I think there's, again, the argument that it's the, it's the sovereign forum's choice whether to apply its own law. I, I don't know the answer, but I know the text. As a practical matter, though, this, we do know the answer. They, they'd apply state law. Yeah, this tribe has no substantive body of law. And, and yet, if, if the tribal court has jurisdiction, that is a real question, isn't it? Is which body of law would be applied, for the very reason that Justice Ginsburg raised. They, they might say, well, we're going to apply tribal law. At the present time, tribal law follows state law, but we could develop tribal law, and our general rule will be that we're going to apply tribal law. That would be possible, wouldn't it? That's correct, yes. All right. Isn't, isn't it a, a consideration that we ought to bear in mind in deciding this case that people who drive on a state highway within state territorial jurisdiction uh, ought to have a uniform body of law uh, that they can depend upon having administered if there is a tort, so that at least within a given state, they don't have to worry about suddenly being uh, subjected to a new legal regime if they happen to cross the, the, the border into, into reservation territory. Wouldn't that be a, a, a good consideration for us to bear in mind in deciding this case? I think that's right, and it's also buttressed by the fact that in this case, both of the parties happen to be citizens of North Dakota. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. McCoy. Uh, Mr. Nectarline? Mr. Nectarline, let me ask you a question that relates to the discussion we were just having. Is there, if tribal court jurisdiction uh, is proper here, between the two non-Indians, and if the tribal court <coughs> were in the subsequent trial uh, to apply some tribal law and make a choice of law 
that it was going to look to tribal law, assuming it had one. Is there any way later that that could be challenged by the losing party in any federal court? Well, it, it is true, Justice O'Connor, that in Iowa Mutual, this yes court... Yes or no? I believe the answer is probably yes, although this court has not specifically addressed that issue. I thought it was quite unclear whether any subsequent challenge could be made. I think if a challenge goes directly to the scope of the tribe's jurisdiction... No, no, a challenge goes to the choice of law. Well, choosing its own law in the course of adjudication is a form of exercising jurisdiction. Well, suppose the jurisdiction question were decided in favor of the petitioner. The tribal court has jurisdiction. Then suppose the tribal court tries the case and were to choose to apply tribal law. That's not this case because the petitioner's counsel said we don't have tribal law, so we wouldn't do that. But let's suppose it's a tribe that does, they choose tribal law. Can that ever be tested in any subsequent proceeding in a federal or state court? I think the answer to that question is yes. And the reason the answer to that question is yes is because as a matter of comedy among sovereigns, it is important for there to be a federal review of a tribal exercise of jurisdiction. Well, but there's no case. Is there a holding that, yes, sure, you can have subsequent review in another jurisdiction? That's correct, Justice O'Connor, but that case has not yet arisen before this court. But it certainly could be unthinkable in a sister state context that a second state could second-guess the first state's choice of law in a collateral attack. Isn't that — isn't there a definite no, a sister state can't do that to each other? That is true. I think the difference between the two cases is that Congress has specifically given the losing party in the state court system a right to appeal to this court to allege none of the due process and full faith and credit clauses. But Congress hasn't done that for tribal court judgment. That is correct, Justice O'Connor. Congress has not passed a statute giving this court appellate jurisdiction. And a choice of law question isn't necessarily due process. It can be in extreme cases, but if — but if there is a valid basis or an arguable basis for choosing either law, you can't get into federal court under due process. That is correct, Justice Kennedy, but there are, in fact, important federal constraints on a forum's choice of its own law. As this court held in cases like Schutz and Allstate, the scope of a forum jurisdiction's ability to choose its own law as the rule of conduct is narrow. And you said it held in Allstate, but Allstate, some might have regarded the homing instinct of that state court as exorbitant, and yet this court held that it didn't violate due process for the state to prefer itself. So it seems to me that the Allstate proves that, at the very least, this court has been extraordinarily indulgent to choice of law decisions made by a forum. Isn't that what one would take away from Allstate? Well, in the subsequent case, Justice Ginsburg, of Phillips Petroleum v. Schutz, this court did, in fact, invalidate the choice of Kansas law as the rule of decision. Certainly not as to an accident that happened within a reservation. I mean, it wasn't the Schutz concern, people who were outside Kansas, whose entire connection to this venture was outside Kansas. I think that's correct, Justice Ginsburg. However, I think there's an important difference. This court, in cases like Montana, Brendale, and Borland, has pointed out that the scope of a tribe's ability to regulate non-Indians, at least on certain kinds of lands within a reservation, is subject to stricter limitations than a state's ability to regulate outsiders. Mr. Nookley, if this is a problem, I suppose it's a problem that only takes a federal statute to solve, right? That's correct. I mean, the question is, do the current federal statutes leave it to the tribal court to decide the case and perhaps 
leave it to the tribal court without any review in federal courts to decide what substance of law to apply. I, I think Congress has spoken to neither issue. And, I, and if, if you're wrong about uh, getting out of the tribal court, Congress can uh, solve that problem by passing a statute. That's correct. And I think it's also significant in that regard that in 1993, Congress based the Indian Tribal Justice Act, which commits substantial federal resources to the development of tribal courts on the premise embraced uh, by this court in Iowa Mutual, that tribal jurisdiction over events arising on a reservation presumptively does lie in tribal court. But what, what sense does it, I mean, suppose there is room in the cases to go either way. I could understand a rule that says people who build houses in fee, you know, I, I'm thinking that this highway is like a fee land. I realize that's a big issue in dispute, but assume it is for the sake of argument. Two people who are not Indians living on the land in fee, they have a house like, you know, they have no, I could understand a rule that say they have to go to the tribal court and tribal law applies. That would be one rule. That's a possible rule. That's how you treat California, probably. Or I could understand a rule which said, well, it's not like California. It's a rule that South Dakota law applies. Then have them go to South Dakota court. I mean, what good does this mixing up of everything do except the lawyers will get very mixed up and the judge will get mixed up and it'll mean a lot of extra cost and uh, hard, very hard to sort out who goes where. I mean, what's to be said against simplifying this? If it's South Dakota law on the fee thing, go to the South Dakota court. If it's the tribal law, go to the tribal court, if there's room to do it. Um, as, as an initial matter, Justice Breyer, uh, we believe that both the state and the tribe have concurrent jurisdiction over this sort of suit in the same way that adjoining states often have jurisdiction over accidents occurring. Talking about jurisdiction, I'm saying if we had room to do it, why wouldn't the sensible thing be to simplify? If it's the state law that governs it, have them go to a state court. If it's the tribal law that governs it, have them go to a tribal court. That way we'd save legal fees, time, and effort. I think actually the approach that best saves resources is the one adopted by this court in Iowa Mutual for the following reason. Uh, it is undisputed that a tribe has uh, adjudicatory jurisdiction even over non-consenting non-Indians in cases where the tribe can point to a particularized interest in the outcome of the dispute sufficient to uh, uh, justify the uh, application of tribal regulatory authority under the Montana Tribal Interest Test. That test looks to see whether or not the activities of non-Indians have a direct effect on tribal welfare or whether or not they've entered into consensual How is that present here? The, no one, no court has yet addressed whether that's present here, and it's my point that it should be the tribal court in the first instance to determine whether or not that fact-specific inquiry is indeed satisfied. And as a, how, how, how about if it goes to trial in the tribal court and the tribe chooses to use as the jury all the friends and relatives of the victim? And they say, yeah, where she's really been injured, and we're going to give a heck of a verdict here, and they do. And um, suppose other errors that might amount to a due process violation in a federal or state court obtain. There is no way to challenge that as a due process violation later in any state or federal court, I assume. I think that's not quite accurate, Justice O'Connor. In this case, what would be the mechanism? Well, in this case, for example, it's, in, in this case, it's my understanding that A1 has no assets on the reservation. So, to enforce the tribal judgment, the prevailing litigant would have to go to state court and persuade that court that the underlying tribal proceedings comported with the rules of comedy that are applicable to the enforcement of foreign judgments. And would those questions be open? Yes, they would, on Justice enforcement O'Connor. Yes, in they North would. Dakota. Yes, they would. But why is it why is it leaving open the possibility? of such a difficult and elaborate proceeding. We know perfectly well that if the jurisdiction is exclusively in the state courts, 
in practical terms, state law will be applied. There won't be the potentiality for these due process issues. Why not have a simple highway rule? What's wrong with that? I, I think this court's, Justice Souter, I think this court's precedents recognize that the tribe would always have jurisdiction not just to regulate conduct, but also to adjudicate disputes in cases where the tribe has a particularized interest. That aspect of the tribe's sovereignty has remained intact. It's the, it's the but it, do we really want to slice the onion this many ways uh, so far as practical effects are concerned? I, I think that whenever we recognize that there are a variety of sovereigns within our nations, whether they're states or, or Indian tribes, jurisdictional issues will arise. I think the best rule to apply but, uh, here... It seems to be the least desirable is what you propose, that the Indian tribal court should first decide whether there's an Indian interest, and then presumably four or five years later, th- that might be reviewed here. I, I think that the best rule is, in fact, that one, and, and this is the reason why. This court has constantly recognized that Indian tribes retain the core sovereign authority to regulate conduct that poses a threat. May I finish my sentence? That poses a threat to the integrity of the tribe. It should be the tribal court in the first instance that makes that determination. That's the implicit premise of National Farmers Union. It would be inefficient not to let the tribe complete the adjudication. Thank you, Mr. Nectarline. Uh, Mr. Ward, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. This court has on several occasions indicated reasons why the tribal court lacks jurisdiction over Mr. Stockard and A1 in this case. Tribal courts exist primarily to apply tribal customs between tribal members. In this instance, the tribe has given up its power to exclude non-members from the state highway. In using the state highway on this occasion, Mr. Stockard did not give up his rights to due process, equal protection, or trial by a jury of his peers. So the result would be different if the accident had occurred inside the reservation on a reservation road not a road on which the state had a perpetual easement? Not necessarily, Your Honor, not in an incident involving two non-members of the tribe. I believe you're not relying on, as Justice Souter spoke, this case could be, could be described as a state highway case, and that would be the end of it. But I think you're telling us now that, that even if it occurred on a reservation road, there would not be tribal jurisdiction. Is that what you're saying? Your Honor, yes. In this, the, the precedents of this course would indicate that the, the state's authority over non-members of the tribe, over its citizens, reaches into the reservation. Um, and so it doesn't necessarily require that the road has been alienated by the tribe. But in this case, that gives the respondents an even stronger position because this is a state highway and it is regulated by the state and it is controlled by the state. And as Justice Breyer indicated, there are interstate highways that run through, re- through reservations as well. And citizens of this country uh, have no idea when they enter an interstate highway to travel to Yellowstone Park or something out in the West that they're subjecting themselves to the torture jurisdiction of a tribal court that could deprive them of their property. Well, they they're, but they're, they're, when they cross the line from, say, North Dakota into Montana, they're going from one jurisdiction into another. How, how much of a impression do you think that makes on them? Your Honor, I think it makes a great impression. I think that citizens of the United States recognize the sovereignty of different states and are comfortable with that. But uh, when they enter these... recognize tribal sovereignty as well. I mean, you're just defending the ignorant, it seems to me. Well, no, Your Honor. I believe that there are limits on tribal sovereignty, and this Court has indicated that in the past. Why is it... They shouldn't be based on 
whether the typical motorist uh, has respect for a tribal court or not, I don't think. No, Your Honor, they should be based on a historical record. They should be based on the decisions of this court and on the Constitution. Well, how, the how is it different when you go to Maine from Massachusetts? You know, very few people know, but you have to go through New Hampshire. <laughs> <laughs> and you could be. I know someone who knows that. <laughs> I know someone who knows that. Uh, isn't isn't the isn't there, there a kind of a dual concern implicit in what you're saying here? It's perfectly true that when you go from North Dakota to South Dakota, you realize you're going into a different jurisdiction. But the general assumption that's made is highway laws, liability rules, and so on are generally more or less the same. So that the the substantive legal regime probably is not changing very much. Here, however, I think in uh, underlying some of your argument uh, uh, are, are two suggestions. One is we really don't have a sense of what the legal regime is going to be uh, if we are subject to tribal jurisdiction with the probability of tribal substantive law. And number two, and one of the amicus briefs was, was pretty explicit about this, there is a real concern uh, about fairness of treatment in the tribal courts by virtue of the fact that the tribal judges can be removed by the tribal political authorities, uh, in effect, if they don't like the results. Are those two reasons, the fact that we have real question about what the substantive legal regime will be in a tribal court, and number two, we have a real question about due process because of the appointment scheme, are those two reasons, reasons that you rely significantly on and feel that we should rely significantly on in deciding this case? Justice Souter, those are two significant reasons. I agree with that. Uh, we rely on those reasons, and in addition, we rely on all of the other reasons we have stated. Well, all those reasons are very interesting, and, and as are our prior cases. Is, is there any text that we can look to for the answer to this question? Have we heard anybody talk about any statutory provision, treaty provision? What? What, there are treaties. What, what is the text that we're talking about? Yeah, there, there, is, this question. there is no specific text in the sense of a statute uh, that addresses this question. Uh, there are treaties with the tribe, and in those treaties, the tribe has historically recognized the right of safe passage for people passing through the reservation. Uh, if, if one looks at those treaties, those treaties never, if you look at the common notions of the day at the time that those treaties were entered into, these tribes from the time almost 20 years after Lewis and Clark to this day realized that there would be rights of way. There would be people passing through and they would not interfere with the rights of those people passing through. And if... Some of the same questions that Justice Scalia is raising. Uh, could Congress authorize this jurisdiction? Is, is that question before us? Or are uh, we... Are we asking whether or not this is inherent in tribal sovereignty, absent some uh, extra directive from the Congress? What is the source of the law that controls this case? The, the, uh, in answer to your first question, yes, Justice Kennedy, the Congress could create this jurisdiction if it chose to do so, but it hasn't. With respect to the second part of your question, this, this case below has been uh, decided on the issue of the inherent sovereignty, and that question is addressed by the decisions of this court. Well, with reference to the answer to your first question, then there would be no constitutional impediment uh, to the exercise of tribal jurisdiction. The constitutional impediment would be that this, the Constitution recognizes two sovereigns, the United States and the states. And unless 
that sovereign, the, the United States, gives this authority, somehow delegates this authority to the tribes, the tribes do not have it. Well, let's put it this way. There would be no due process violation uh, in subjecting the, uh, your client to the jurisdiction of the tribal court. Yes, Your Honor, there would be. Uh, well, then why did you say that Congress could authorize it? Well, Your Honor, I, I think that Congress certainly is. My client is a citizen of the United States, and Congress can certainly create uh, a court that he would have to respond to unless that action itself was unconstitutional. We have not addressed that question here. Well, you're not challenging the concept of Indian tribal sovereignty, surely. No, I'm not, I mean, This court in many decisions has recognized that. The federal government has recognized it. It's a fact of, of existence. No, we are not questioning the concept of tribal sovereignty. Well, then, well, are, are you asking us just to make a, a, a general choice of law rule as to what's wise? I mean, what is, what's the controlling doctrine that, that, that guides this case? The controlling doctrine is the Montana case that was decided by this case, which provides the limitations, or at least addresses the limitations on tribal sovereignty and the exceptions to those limitations where non-members are involved. But that was regulatory sovereignty. I mean, that was legislative sovereignty. It was, it was legislative, but the sovereignty of a tribe, whether it's legislative or adjudicative, comes from the same place. It comes from whatever retained inherent sovereignty remained after the tribes were incorporated into the United States. And as this court has recognized in Oliphant and Wheeler, for purposes of criminal jurisdiction, there is no tribal sovereignty. And the tribe could not, as in some of the earlier examples, exercise any criminal jurisdiction over either of the parties here because they are both non-members of the tribe. May, may I go back to, a, to an answer uh, to a question from Justice Kennedy? You, you, you said, well, even if Congress provided by statute that there would be jurisdiction in the tribal court in, in this case, that there would, there would or could, I'm not sure which you said, still be a due process problem. Did you mean by that simply that you might still raise a due process, challenge, due process challenge to the particular manner in which uh, the, the, uh, the, the court offices were appointed or the jurors selected or whatnot? That's correct, Your Honor. Okay. And also potentially to the, the manner in which those courts are created. By, by what mechanism do you think you could get into another court to, to raise some due process challenge to what actually occurred? Well, Your Honor, that would be a difficult problem because the court's Santa Clara Pueblo decision uh, seem to indicate that the, the issues uh, of the Indian Civil Rights Act with respect to due process uh, will not be reviewed except in habeas corpus proceedings. So unless there was some revision of that decision with respect to review for non-members, the Santa Clara Pueblo case did involve a member, and she was questioning tribal, the issue of tribal membership rules. But why would it operate? Ms. McCoy, I think, told us that... Uh, as a practical matter to enforce a judgment of this nature for rendered by the tribe, you'd have to go into state court, bring a fresh proceeding to enforce that judgment. And couldn't the defendant in that enforcement proceeding say that I recognize Indian tribal sovereignty is like the sovereignty of France or Italy. When we're dealing with a sovereign to whom the full faith and credit clause doesn't apply, then we have certain checks, and one of them is due process. So we would look to the particular proceeding and see if essentially fair procedure was accorded in the tribal court. There would be, in this instance, a comedy provision pursuant to the North Dakota rule uh, with respect to enforcement of this tribal judgment. So there would be some limited review. But as I say, that's fortuitous, just because there happens to be no property on the reservation that could be seized. Correct. Uh, 
But, you know, the same situation exists if it's a suit between two Indians, or I assume a suit between one Indian and a, and a, and a, a person off the reservation. And why do we, why is it so terrible that, uh, that uh, two non-Indians can't get review of a tribal court judgment by uh, a federal or state court, but not terrible that uh, the two Indians can't get uh, a review of a, of a similarly uh, outrageous tribal court? I mean, do we care more about non-Indians than Indians for some reason? No, no I don't think we if do. If we're content with that rule for Indians, why, why, why can't we be content with it for non-Indians? Your Honor, because Indians are members of the tribe. They choose to be members of the tribe. They choose to reside on the reservation. They benefit from that membership. I'm a Virginian, but Virginia can, uh, can deny me due process just as well. Uh, I, I, I would argue I that it can't, Your Honor. <laughs> I mean, you could challenge it if Virginia did. Uh, you certainly, uh, a non-Indian does not have a right to participate in tribal governance. He doesn't have the right to vote. He doesn't have the right to uh, be involved in any of the decision-making. Happy family and never deprive one another of due process. Your Honor, I, I would hope that we were. Uh, I don't know. Do you have any bucolic, uh, pre pre-nature uh, regime there? I don't think so. It seems to me that the, the, the injustice could exist just as well between, uh, in a suit between two Indians. And, and, and if we're resigned to not having that reviewed for them, I don't know why we can't be resigned to not having that reviewed for a suit between uh, two non-Indians. Well, Your Honor, that question, I guess, has not been answered by this court uh, well, with respect to non-Indians. Let me ask a related question. Although there's been a speculation about due process horribles, are there, do you have any documented examples that anything's going wrong in these courts? Uh, absolutely, Your Honor. I mean, it's not part of this record, but certainly... Where, where, would I, where, would I, where could I properly look to find these? Is examples? the case, uh, a similar case being considered now in the Ninth Circuit? Yes, there is, Your Honor. There's a case involving the Burlington Northern Railroad, which filed one of the amicus briefs here, uh, in which the tribal jury was composed of relatives and friends of the complainants. Uh, there was a parade of horribles in that case and an extremely unfair verdict, uh, and that is pending review in the Ninth Circuit. Well, that's, I, I don't mean to belittle that case, but that is one case. Do, do we, yes, do we have any, any documentation of, of a generalized problem? Well, Your Honor, I, as far as documentation, other than there are other cases that I'm aware of where due process violations are occurring in tribal courts, uh, with respect to non-members. Well, can I read, is, is there a law report or something that I can read to find these examples? There, there are some law review articles on the subject, Your Honor. The, the best, I think, would be the amicus brief of the Burlington Northern Railroad in this case. In the, uh, Mr. American Mr. Ward, do you agree that, that if we um, take what Justice Souter suggested might be uh, a rule of the road here, that is, if it's an interstate highway, if it's, it's a state highway, then the state this case belongs in state court and state law will apply. Then we don't get into any of these other questions that might arise if this accident occurred on a road within the reservation. That's true. Just stay on the good road. You've got nothing to worry about. Stay on the state <laughs> highways. Uh, that's, that's true. You could do that. And, in this case, and that would be consistent, I think, in this case with the uh, alienation of the land in the Borland case, which involved the dam for Lake Oahe, just below the dam for Lake Sakakawea, which is... How does it normally work with, I mean, this notion of splitting adjudicatory jurisdiction for, from uh, uh, legislative or regulatory jurisdictions, rather interesting. I, I just wonder, as a practical matter, uh, uh, in the Dakotas or Montana or places where there are... Uh, 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 quite a few reservations that have alienated quite a lot of land so that there are many fee uh, uh, inhabitants who own their land in fee. 
What's the expectation now? How does it work when there's a simple accident, a tort, a slip and fall, uh, a contract dispute, not with any of the tribes? But, I mean, do those people now think they're supposed to go to a tribal court to get their, uh, their matter adjudicated? No, Justice Breyer. They go to the state court? Yes, they do. And are you aware of any instances in which tribal courts took jurisdiction over these uh, simple slip and fall, uh, normal contract disputes on, on the houses or uh, farms of the people who hold their land on, in fee? Involving non-members. No, not to my knowledge, Your Honor. Those people are treated, treated as citizens of the state of North Dakota. They have access to the courts of but the Mr. state. Mr. Ward, here's a question of concurrent jurisdiction. And isn't this... This kind of case can only come up if the plaintiff, even if a non-member, would have a real close affiliation with the tribe. Because in the cases Justice Breyer was suggesting, it's a plaintiff's choice of forum. Most non-Indians probably wouldn't go to the tribal court in this kind of accident. But this non-Indian had a very, very close relationship with the tribe. And so that's why she did. That's correct. Why is that? Why is that? I don't, I mean, I don't. Why did why, she choose? in fact, there is a judicatory authority uh, in over over the say this if if this is equivalent to fee, and there is adjudicatory authority of the tribal court over people who hold their title in fee, then why couldn't the tribe, if it wished to, say that you have to go to the tribal court, whether you're related to somebody who's a member of the tribe, whether you're not? Your Honor, the tribe could, assuming that the other party. So in fact, was then I think the issue in this case. There are two issues. One is whether they're going to have adjudicatory jurisdiction over all accidents, contracts on fee land. Or the second issue could be this isn't fee land. This is not fee land. This is an easement shouldn't be treated as fee land. So I'd, I'd appreciate your addressing that second contention briefly. Well, Your Honor, this is not fee land because... This land was... If you say not, then they win, I think. Uh, I think you're, conf you're talking about fee land. And I, I'm sorry. You I kind of talked about fee land in the sense of other people owning it, not, not the tribes. Right. Well, you, you confused me. I, I was confused by the question, okay. Your Honor. And, and what, I, what I mean is this, is, this this easement for this highway is certainly the equivalent of fee land. It is an alienation of the land by the tribe. It is a giving up of well, the power to control. it's just an easement like any other highway easement or like any other uh, utility easement. It is a permission for the state to have a highway. Is it, it not? That's it is what we have. It's, it's part of the total bundle of property rights. Well, but it's, it's more than that in the sense that it's giving up the power to exclude. It's giving up the power to regulate the highway. The state regulates the highway. The state Well, now, we heard that the tribe also regulates the, the rules of the road, so to speak, on this highway. The tribe, the case? The tribe they have regulations governing the use of this highway? The tribe regulates its members with respect to the highway, Your Honor. Not non-members? Not to my knowledge, Your Honor. Generally speaking... We heard to the contrary. Well, my understanding is that the practical application by the, by the tribe and the highway patrol is that if a non-Indian is involved, the tribe will call in the deputy sheriff from the county, or they will call in the highway patrol. So and your that, understanding is different from petitioner's counsel? That's correct. In this regard? If, that's if correct. If the tribe yes. had not given up the, the, the easement to the state for the highway, could, could uh, non-tribal members be totally excluded? I mean, can a tribe just say, uh, you know, we don't want to give the state any highway land, and since there are no state highways, uh, no outsiders, just tribal members? Can a tribe do that? I, I... Uh, the tribe, in this instance, certainly did give up the easement. Whether the tribe could decide not to, 
I, I believe oh, the tribe did not have to. Have we had to. cases involving that, that on tribal land, the tribe has the right to exclude others? We've had cases decided on that very basis. Yes, we, yes, you have, Your Honor, and those cases involved reservations where the tribe retained its power to exclude, as opposed to where it had given that up and, and agreed to give free passage and agreed to allow rights. And did it go along with this easement that the, that the tribe promised not to exclude anybody? Yes, Your Honor. The, tri the only rights reserved to the tribe in the easement were the right to create crossings for purposes of approaches to farms and, and things like that. Otherwise, the easement gave the state the rights to the surface of the road. Do you know of any case where a tribe claims exclusive jurisdiction, which I believe is what Justice Breyer was suggesting, claim exclusive jurisdiction as distinguished from concurrent jurisdiction with the state over a, a tort that happens on a highway or on sea land? I, I'm not aware of any case from this court, Your Honor, where the tribe has... But do you know of any tribe that has asserted exclusive jurisdiction as distinguished from concurrent jurisdiction? I believe the plaintiff chooses the forum. I believe that the tribes may be, and I believe that the effect of what happens... Uh, pursuant to the petitioner's argument in cases as a result of Iowa Mutual is that state courts and federal courts are reluctant to proceed because the action has been started in a tribal court. And so from that standpoint, whether the tribe asserts exclusive jurisdiction, in effect it is by the way that the procedure is followed once, it, once that jurisdiction is invoked. I, I must say, I am confused by the easement discussion. I'm, I'm not, you know, a, a sovereign can concede land, even the whole fee, much less an easement, without conceding any sovereignty over that land. If I purchase land from the United States, the United States doesn't give up jurisdiction over that land. It's still subject to United States law. I don't know that the fact that the, that the tribe gives an easement to, to a state necessarily means that the tribe thereby cedes all of its jurisdictional responsibility over the over the land as to which the easement was given. Why, why do you assume that's the case? Is yeah. it clear that the tribe could not regulate um, Indians on that, on that easement, for example? Well, the, re the reason I assume that's the case is, is for reasons similar to the Boylan decision of this court, that in that case the tribe gave up the authority over the taken area for the building of the dam and for the recreational enjoyment of hunting and fishing uh, in that area. And the tribe, similar to this case, asserted that it maintained regulatory control even over non-Indians in that area. And this court decided, no, it did not, that it did not retain that regulatory control, and it further decided that that kind of control was not part of the tribe's inherent sovereignty. Only over non-Indians, you would say. That. So, I mean, your, your highway principle that, uh, that Justice Souter was, uh, was discussing with you would only apply to regulation of, of non-Indians on the highway. Well, Your Honor, this, this court has never decided whether an easement or an alienation of land would, would give up the authority over the tribal members, I don't think it goes that far. I think the tribe, the essence of the tribe's sovereignty is the tribe's right to regulate the affairs of its members. So in that sense, there may be concurrent jurisdiction of the tribe over its members with respect to the highway. Its and members it's, within the boundaries of the reservation. Exactly. Yes. To the, once, the, once the state highway goes beyond the borders of the reservation, the tribe loses its, its uh, authority even over its members. I take it the terms of the easement in this case do not address these questions. Not specifically, no, Your Honor. But this court stated in the Montana decision... Is that really completely true? Some have argued that uh, one of the sources of tribal jurisdiction over non-Indians is the power to exclude. 
That's and correct. the tribe has given up the power to exclude non-Indians from this road. Yes, they have, Your Honor. So arguably, they might have given up jurisdiction to regulate non-Indians on this road. I would submit that that's true, Your Honor. And I think that this court... Well, except it's, it's given up the power not only to exclude them from the road, but the power to exclude them from the reservation. So, I mean, if you follow that logic, they, they, they would not have... They would not have power to regulate their activities on the rest of the reservation either. That, that may be true, Your Honor, because with respect have to these... Have they given up the power to exclude generally from the reservation? Well, with respect to these particular tribes, there are no closed areas like there were in the Brendale decision. Uh, this is a, an open reservation. There are approximately 40% fee land. Uh, close to 50% of the people living on the reservation are non-members. So there, there, there's a significant interaction. And from an economic standpoint, a decision that would close the reservation or make people fearful of entering the reservation for fear of losing their property as a result of, a, of an adverse judgment there would not be good for the tribes, and it would not encourage intercourse with the tribes, which is something that uh, Congress has always indicated as part of its essential purpose in dealing with the tribes. Could you explain them. something to, to help focus on the precise law that we look to to resolve this case? If a state court exercises personal jurisdiction over someone erroneously, there's no personal jurisdiction, that person doesn't run into federal court and get an injunction. Why, what was the theory on which you went into federal court here originally? The, the theory that we originally went into federal court was that we had exhausted our tribal court remedies with respect to jurisdiction and that the tribe did not have jurisdiction to involuntarily force Mr. Stockard and A1 contractors into one of its courts for purposes of a civil case. But, but is, is that, was it a violation of a federal standard or a federal law for the tribe to proceed that way? It was a violation of the decisions of this court in the Montana case and a misapplication of the exceptions of that case uh, in order to it proceed. It sounds to me like you're saying that there is no authority to proceed, but I, I'm not sure why that's... Uh, presents a, a, a federal question until they, until they try to levy on your assets or something. Well, Your Honor, I believe the federal question is presented by the fact that there is a deprivation of Mr. Stockard's rights. There is a deprivation of his right to have this case heard in a court to which he's a member, to which he can vote. Well, that's, to, how, how's that any different from my hypothetical of going into a state court, uh, of a state court exercising jurisdiction over me, and I say, well, you have no jurisdiction. Well, I don't it, rush into federal court and get an injunction. I, I don't see that there's a federal question there. Well, it's, it's different in the sense that there's different sovereigns involved, Your Honor. The states, uh, the sovereignty of the states is different from the states of the tribes. I'm well, is there a federal question jurisdiction over in, any question of Indian law? Is yes, there is, Your Honor. Because, the, the, because of the plenary power of Congress in dealing with the Indians that's referenced in the Constitution. Uh, this court has indicated... Our cases like I Iowa Mutual uh, certainly suggest that you can, uh, not only suggest, but I think they hold you can come into federal court Absolutely. if there's been exhaustion. That's exactly what the Farmers Union case said, Your Honor. The Farmers Union case said that federal courts are the final arbiters of questions of Indian jurisdiction. So to the extent that authority is needed for that proposition, it, it's in the Farmers Union case. Um, and it was again in Iowa Mutual. And basically what Iowa Mutual was, was an extension of that exhaustion requirement. But again, uh, and it, it dealt with Section 1332 jurisdiction for diversity cases, but it extended that exhaustion requirement that was announced in Farmers Union and recognized that, yes, it is a federal question. The question of Indian jurisdiction is a federal question because of the unique nature of Indian tribes. Um, in their dealings with the Congress and with the American people. Uh, there has been no congressional delegation of adjudicatory authority Another over the non-members. What if the plaintiff in this case had been a tribal member? Would your case be stronger or weaker? 
Your Honor, I believe in this case, under these facts, my case would not be any weaker. Uh, uh, the, 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 if the plaintiff were a tribal member, you would still have the same issues of the divestment of the highway. You would still have the, the divestment of the power to exclude. You would Are still there, have in fact, children of the named plaintiff, adult children who are tribal members who have claims in this very case? There are adult children who have uh, consortium claims that they have. Yeah, and they are tribal members. They are tribal. Their claims are not before us? Though, that's correct, Your Honor. Their claims are not before us. Those are uh, claims that are derivative and they are essentially pendant claims. And they can adequately be pursued in the state courts uh, as well, pursuant to the second Montana exception. To the extent there is a tribal interest that could be asserted here, however marginal, uh, that, that interest couldn't be adequately protected in the state court. And not only is there uh, is a petitioner conceding that there's concurrent jurisdiction, but there is actually an action pending in the state court. And with respect to the community argument that has been made by the petitioners, the local courthouse, the closest local courthouse in the state court is actually closer to the area where this accident happened than the reservation courthouse, which is across the lake and, and around the highway. Since the lake was constructed, you actually would have to go around the lake almost. You'd have to go far west and then cross a bridge to get to the tribal courthouse, and you'd just go a few miles south to get to the county courthouse. So it's, it's not like there, there's any disadvantage to uh, Mrs. Fredericks being required to use a state court of which she's a citizen and of which she has power to vote. If there are no further questions, Your Honor, I would. Is that Lake Saka, Kauai, is that a corruption of Saka, Sakaja? Well, it, uh, the Native American people in our part of the country would uh, argue, Your Honor, that it's not a corruption, but the actual pronunciation of the name is Saka, Thank you. Well, Thank you. Thank you.